the assignments that will mean the most to you in the end are not necessarily the ones that were the most successful or where you had more tailwinds. The assignments that sometimes define you the most, mark you the most, and you take greatest pride in is the challenges that you face and being able to overcome them. I'd say is of all the things that I was a part of at PNG, the one that I'm proudest of was at the time viewed as one of our greatest failures and how we dealt with it. Great companies are all about the people. Good people become great leaders, mentors for work and life. Welcome to Learnings from Leaders, the PNG Alumni Podcast. I'm Roman Segel, recovering marketer. And I'm Andrew Tarvin, humor engineer. Roman and I both got our start at PNG, the Procter and Gamble company, where we had the opportunity to work with some amazing people. And as you may know, many leaders across industries got their start at PNG. In this series, through conversations with fellow PNG alums, we hope to go deeper with the leaders you already know but want to know more about. It's kind of like being a fly on the wall for my mentoring coffees. On today's show, we're talking to PNG alumni leader Jorge Mesquita, who is the former executive vice president for Johnson and Johnson. It was a great conversation about lessons learned from a distinguished career. Here's a quick bio on Jorge. Jorge Mesquita is the former executive vice president of Johnson & Johnson and worldwide chairman of Johnson & Johnson Consumer Companies, Inc., serving on the corporation's executive committee and leading the consumer group operating committee. Jorge joined Johnson & Johnson from Procter & Gamble in 2014 after a 29-year career where he was recognized for the reinvention of some major brands such as Tide, Swiffer, Febreze, Downey, and others. Jorge spent his first 15 years at P&G working in various capacities across Latin America, including roles in oral care and beauty, and he has also served on several professional and community boards, including the Cincinnati Opera Association Board of Trustees, Mondelez, and CADCA. What really stands out to me in this conversation is just how full of wisdom Jorge really is. With each story he told, there was an important learning associated with it, such as when he shared his take on family time. Work-life balance is a recurring topic on our show, and every guest has their own take. For Jorge, it's about what you do with the time you have with your loved ones. He shared similar great insights as to how to deal with failure and what it means to leave a legacy in your role. He did it all with two traits he considers vital to being successful as a leader, self-confidence and humility. I think you're going to enjoy our conversation, so let's dive right in with Jorge Mesquita. On today's show, we're talking to Jorge Mesquita, former executive vice president of Johnson & Johnson. Jorge, welcome to the podcast. We're excited to have you with us. Thank you very much, Drew. It's a pleasure to be with you today. I'm very excited to chat with you. Now, some may already know your professional story, but if they're not familiar, as a quick refresher, you graduated from the Florida Institute of Technology with a Bachelor's of Science in Chemical Engineering and started at Procter & Gamble in 1984. From there, you went on to lead some major global business units in home care, fabric care, and the pet care categories, and were recognized for the reinvention of some major brands, including Tide, Twiffer, Febreze, Mr. Clean, Downey, Don, Cascades, Imes, and on and on. When you joined Johnson & Johnson in 2014, you ultimately made your way to executive vice president and worldwide chairman of Johnson & Johnson Consumer Companies, Inc., 
serving on the corporation's executive committee and leading the consumer group operating committee. So my question for you is, you know, being born and raised in Mozambique, was that the career you imagined you would grow up to have? That's a good question, Drew. Well, the reality is no. As you mentioned, I was born and raised in Mozambique in Southeast Africa. My parents were from there too, and I'm of Portuguese descent. My grandparents had immigrated to Mozambique, but unfortunately there was a civil war in the mid 70s there and we had to leave the country it was a very difficult situation and for the people of mozambique for the country and for my family so at the time we had no idea what the future brought but my father was able to find employment in brazil with a company called caterpillar tractors you know based in illinois and from then we moved on to venezuela and i was very lucky that you know procter and gamble reached out to me while I was studying in school in the United States, in Florida. And I was interviewed to join the research and development department of P&G in Venezuela, in Latin America. So it was a lot of serendipity, a lot of good fortune that brought me to P&G. One of our recruiters from P&G, a gentleman that was a mentor of mine for many years called Ron Shapiro, just happened to walk by the offices of my chemical engineering professors in, in Florida Institute of Technology and dropped an application form. And had they not done that, I would never have, or most likely not have joined PNG. So I was, I think in life, you need to be prepared for the opportunities when they come knocking. But at the same time, there's a certain amount of serendipity and good fortune. And I certainly had that when PNG you know, cross, cross paths with me. Very nice. And so one that, like you said, great serendipity that, you know, decided to, to stop off at the, the offices, but even prior to that, what was it about kind of your, your childhood or growing up that you decided chemical engineering was your path that, you know, as a, as a young child, were you always someone who like, liked kind of chemistry or the engineering side of things? What led you to that degree? Well, actually, you know, when I was in Mozambique and my aspiration, my passion was probably to be more into journalism or into writing in, in some way, shape or form. That's kind of the, the part of, you know, of my academic experience that I really had enjoyed the most. When I arrived in Venezuela, you know, I did not master Spanish as a language very well. So as you can imagine, I found it to be very difficult for me to be an effective journalist in a language that I did not control. That said, I also had learned along the way that I really liked science and I liked chemistry. And Venezuela, as you know, has had for many years a very large, well-developed petrochemical industry. So I pragmatically said, okay, I like sciences too, so let me go in this direction because I felt that there was a large field of opportunity that I could explore upon my graduation and as I returned back home to Venezuela. I like the pragmatism of both of those things, recognizing oh, it'd be hard to be a journalist in a language that I'm necessarily fluent in, at least as of yet. And then, oh, engineering seems to be this focus. And so around that time, whether it was Mozambique or in Venezuela, is there any kind of lesson that you learn that still resonates with you or informs how you do things? Maybe it was something from your parents or grandparents or teachers or something like that? Well, I learned a number of things. So going back to what I just talked about, the serendipity of bumping into P&G and having that good fortune, and also the serendipity of, you know, what do I decide to study based on you know the pragmatic consideration of I did not master Spanish. 
I guess the advice I would give my sons as they go into their professional life or anyone that might be hearing this that is starting their career at P&G is you need to have a vision of what you want to do. But at the same time, while you need to be prepared and be dedicated to that, you need to remain flexible and you need to be prepared to pivot from something that you believe in if something new that is, seems to be more attractive or a better opportunity comes your way. It's perfectly fine. It's healthy to have a vision of where you want to go. But what I've learned along the way is that my life has turned out to be very different from anything that I had ever imagined when I was growing up. And not everything, not every experience that I've had has been good. Some have been difficult, challenging from a security standpoint, economic standpoint, whatever. But I wouldn't change a thing because I learned from those experiences along the way. So again, my first piece of advice, if I may, is have a path, have a vision, but be prepared to adapt, to learn and evolve and change. And sometimes you just have to have the courage and the faith in yourself that things will be okay and kind of step forward in, into the new opportunities as they come. What I learned the most from my life was to embrace change. I think between the time I was six and 40 years old when I arrived in the U.S., I lived on average about two and a half years in any one city. So my life was constantly about change in a very turbulent macroeconomic and political time globally. And so I learned to overcome my own tendencies not to embrace change. I often ask myself, if I had stayed in Mozambique all my life and not never gone anywhere, would I have been happier today? What would my life been like compared to what it turned out to be? Because I kind of envied colleagues of mine that I've met along the way who have their roots in one country, one city, one state, and they feel very connected to the community, the extended families, etc. I never had that because of the nature of my life. But I concluded, even though that a lot of the changes that I've been to, not of them were, not all of them were positive, I concluded that I wouldn't change a thing in my life. I was just going to say, I think that's the goal, right? Is that obviously, yeah, there's always going to be ups and downs, but I think it's a great thing to be able to say that you feel comfortable in that. And kind of to your point, as you mentioned, the importance of having a vision, the way that I kind of frame it with some of our, our leadership programs that we do is that it's important to have a vision, but not a script right? Where the vision can adapt and it can evolve as you get new input versus a script is like, nope, it's got to be exactly this way. What I've learned over the years is that myself and a lot of other really talented people that I worked with and that I was responsible for their development also have this tendency to be reluctant to change. Change doesn't come natural to most human beings. They prefer things that are well known. And if they're being successful and if they are accomplishing and enjoying where they are, why mess with success? Why change? And what I would say is I always learned along the way to trust my management at PNG, to trust the people that were responsible for my development, and to keep an open mind about pushing myself into those unknowns that come with change, a change in assignment, a change in country, a change in geography. And I would say Again, have a path of what you believe would be great for your career, what your aspirations are, and what you'd like to do, but remain flexible, remain open to trust the people that are responsible for your development. And when the time comes, step into that unknown 
And you'll see that on the other side, there's a lot of personal growth. There's going to be new people you're going to meet that are going to allow you to continue to grow as a person and as a professional. And that's something that I really thought I was finally prepared to do because my life biography had pushed me to have to embrace change because I had no choice. And once you kind of practice that, actually it becomes easier for you to be able to be more adaptable to change. Yeah, which I think is a valuable thing for people to recognize is that I love that, that phrase that you said, when the time comes, step into the unknown and and recognizing that adapting to change becomes easier almost a sense. It's like it's, it's a skill you can learn. So I like that as encouragement that especially if you haven't had to do too much change early on and it feels tough to know with time, it becomes a little bit easier. So I'm just curious about that kind of journey, the especially kind of that first early career at P&G. Were there any kind of early defining moments that informed either that embracing of change or your leadership style as you became more experienced? Well, first of all, I have to say my first few years at P&G were fantastic. I worked in the research and development organization of Procter & Gamble in Venezuela, serving Latin America, and I learned so much about being a professional, about the fundamentals of expressing your thoughts when writing and orally, resolve critical problems, thinking, analytical thinking. And along the way, I felt that everyone that I worked with, all my bosses, all my peers, they had my best interests in mind. They genuinely cared about my success, and they were genuinely vested in ensuring that I would be the best professional, the best leader that I could be. So I was just walking on cloud nine throughout the first few years. And and it was really, really a formative experience for me in terms of what I became later as a leader. Now, the one thing that happened was after about two years of my work at R&D, even though I really enjoyed it, I had a lot of exposure to the rest of the company, particularly the marketing consumer research insights organization. And I really found that I always had this kind of dual interest in writing and communication and in science and problem solving. And so I found that in brand management at PNG, I was able to kind of stretch both of those sides of my capabilities, perhaps a little bit more so than I was doing in my R&D assignment. So I was very fortunate that the company had the flexibility and the willingness to help me make the transition. And so after three years of work in R&D, which again, I'd say has been one of the most formative experiences for me, where I learned about the fundamentals, but also learned about the consumer, learned about technology and science, and how we address consumer needs in a way that is better than competition. All of that was foundationally very important for my development. But then when I got into brand management, I learned an entirely new world of running the business and really much more focus on the commercial and the communication aspects of the business. So I think that's one of the great things about PNG is that based on your accomplishments and based on your interests, the company can provide you with a broad range of experiences and assignments. So you find your optimal path for the long term. Well, and it's a, a great example of what you talked about earlier of like being willing to adapt that to different environments and to step into the unknown. I imagine there's some of that when going from an engineering thing that you know and then into 
brand management. It's a very good point you're making. I mean, at the time I made that decision to switch to brand management, I was being very fortunate in being successful at R&D. I felt you know, very well viewed and I was on the right track after three years to continue growing. So I, I had a certain path that I was very confident about. And this was a time when I made the change. It was a time when I was recently married. I had my first young son who was six months old. So there was a lot at stake. And I knew that by stepping into this unknown of brand management, there was a higher risk and less certainty that I would be as successful as I had been in R&D. But again, it was a moment where I said, I really want to give this a try. I don't want to look back in my career when it's done 30 years down the line and say, well, you never at least made the effort or the attempt to learn and to figure out if this is right for you. And so again, yeah, you're right. I think it's an example of that stepping into the unknown that I was fortunate to have made. And I think that resonates with certainly with me and a lot of other people, at least historically, when they talk about people and their regrets, a lot of times it's people regretting things that they didn't do. So I think that's a great example of saying, oh, I think in the future, I would regret not having tried this. So even though it's scary or unknown, going to, to give it a go. But you mentioned earlier that you've also been informed by some things that haven't worked out or some of the challenging kind of experiences. Can you share an example of a time where something didn't maybe go quite the way you thought it would or planned and, and how you learned from it? Yeah, I mean, as I said, I wouldn't change anything about my life, but I've had situations where you feel overwhelmed by the circumstances. So when I was in Mozambique as a young man, that civil war was raging in just about every place in the country and you could feel the danger. You could hear the sounds of war very close to to where you lived. So obviously I was the oldest of three siblings and I had to kind of keep an eye out for them and but it was a tough time. It was a it was a time that you learned not to take basic things like your personal security for granted. Then when I arrived in Brazil, now already in service with PNG, I mean, the situation was very challenging. On one hand, the, the president had just been impeached for corruption. On the other, there was inflation of about 1,600% a year. So we had inflation of 40% a month, and we took prices up 10% every Monday. The country was in deep recession. Consumers would spend just about all of their salary in the first few days of the month when they got paid. Because at the end of the month, that money was worth 40% less. So imagine what that did in terms of us trying to run a business. Our company was very small in Brazil at the time. It was about $60 million in sales and we were hemorrhaging a lot of money. We were bleeding and losing around $40 million in income on sales of $60 million. So we had a disadvantage versus the large companies we were competing with. We had a very tough economic environment. And it was a real formative experience for me to, on one hand, take care of my family during that time when you lived in Brazil. But on top of that, to be able to grow the business, to start gaining market shares, turn around the profitability in that very, very challenging time. So what I would say to you is not... The assignments that will mean the most to you in the end, the assignments you'll be proudest of, are not always necessarily the ones that were strictly the most successful or the ones where you had more tailwinds. I think the assignments that sometimes 
define you the most, uh, mark you the most, and you take greatest pride in is the challenges that you face and being able to face those challenges and then overcome them. I think that's something that is equally rewarding and you can take as much pride as the things that were kind of more smooth sailing and everything was just going right from day one. Which I think is great advice to recognize and can potentially help some of the people who maybe if they're listening right now and going through a challenging environment, certainly we are living in challenging times in many ways, but also for people to recognize in an assignment, if it's difficult, that maybe this is the one that you'll look back on and realize you've grown the most or you've adapted the most or in some ways. What I'd say is of all the things that I was a part of at P&G, the one that I'm proudest of was what at the time was viewed as one of our greatest failures and how we dealt with it. So here's the situation. We're talking probably around 2003, 2004, when I arrived in Florida with my family for Thanksgiving week on Friday prior to Thanksgiving week. And I got a call from our head of R&D saying that a new product that we had launched in the market called a Swiffer Sweep and Vac, which was a Swiffer with a vacuum cleaner kind of um, implanted in it, was reported by consumers to create some sparks in their pantries. And in one instance, there was some flames that came out and some the walls of the pantry were kind of darkened by the smoke and those flames. And we needed to recall the product from the market. And you can imagine how bad we all felt about this. This was a defect from the manufacturer that made the device in China that had wired some cables in the wrong way. And... I had to fly back that same evening, me and my team back to Cincinnati, and we start working the next day at 6 a.m. We sat down with AG, our CEO at the time, and informed him of this quality issue, and we recommended to him that we needed to recall the product from the market, even though they said that the chances that the product would actually catch fire and really harm consumers would be one in six million. But for us, we just couldn't deal with it. We just could not take any chance whatsoever to have a product like that create a hazard that could lead to injuring or, God forbid, killing any of our consumers. So we worked diligently that week, night and day as a team, and we recalled the product on Friday of Thanksgiving week. And I was very proud of the team and the way they did it. I mean, we reached out to consumers who had bought our product I had to call Walmart and say to them that we had to cancel the Sunday ads, front page ad that they put on their weekly pamphlet magazine. Of course, we reached out immediately to the Consumer Product Safety Commission and explained to them what happened and worked very proactively with them to get this done. And in doing all of this, we got a lot of good feedback from consumers that said, wow, you guys are really proactive and caring. And we asked them to ship the product to us and we would replace it free of cost. And we made that, you know, our mission was to make this the best recall ever that P&G has ever done. And we felt really good about how we executed it. And so much so that several months later, we got a call from the Consumer Product Safety Commission asking us to come and speak to them about what we did because they considered our leadership behavior and our proactiveness to be exemplary on how 
companies can deal with quality issues like this. And then in the end, the coolest thing was that in May of the following year, this happened in November, so six months later, when we relaunched the product in the market already fully fixed, we all actually had a Thanksgiving lunch together to celebrate the relaunch, but also to catch up for the Thanksgiving that we had missed six months before. So I tell you this story because facing challenges and adversity with honesty, not evading the problem, not sweeping it under the rug, but really taking the bull by the horns, admit responsibility, and then engage in fixing the challenge, overcoming the challenge, can be something that is a real test for a team, a real test for an organization. And frankly, I learned that some there were some members of my team that were not as courageous as I had hoped, and others that stepped up marvelously and shown the kind of leadership, integrity, and courage that was really impressive. So times of challenges like this can also be a moment for you to get a full sense for the character and the capability of the people that you work with. But again, this is just a story that is could have been tragic. Fortunately, no one got harmed. And while it was our darkest hour for a few weeks, I think many of us that worked on that business at a time, even though we had a lot of other successes, we look at that moment as one of our finest moments. And I can certainly see why. What a fantastic case study in one, being proactive about it, but also even just the mindset of kind of saying, okay, if we're going to have to do this saying, let's make it the best recall ever and, and use it as an opportunity to actually instill maybe further trust with the consumer as opposed to trying to, like you say, you know, it wasn't sweeping it under the rug. But I, I really love that component too of we had Thanksgiving dinner six months later because we had to miss it. Let's celebrate, but also make up for it kind of almost in a way. And so I'm curious, because you mentioned certainly your family a couple of times with changes in your career and things like that. And from your perspective, I know one of the things our listeners are constantly battling is that quote unquote work-life balance or how are they making their decisions and their with their career, but also with family. How has family played a role or how have you at least communicated kind of, how do you communicate something like, hey, sorry, we can't do this for Thanksgiving, but then make up for it later. How do you balance those two things? One of the things that I'm actually very proud of is I was having a conversation with my sons recently, and we were talking about the fact that I was gone for so long. I worked for P&G for 29 years, and then more recently, another four years with Johnson & Johnson. So, And these were global jobs, so I was gone a great deal. And one of the things my oldest son, Joshua, said is, it's true. You're clearly not around as much as mom was. But I think it's fair to say that we felt like we didn't miss a thing. Because when I was home, I was all in with them. I mean, I was full out with them, having fun, playing sports, watching sports, doing the things that we love to do together, spending time as a family. So I think the most important thing is, you know, of course, I was fortunate to have a spouse that could stay at home and take care of my kids. Not everyone has that good fortune, especially when you're starting your career. But I would say, regardless of how challenging it is in terms of time management, I think the most important thing is to really make sure that when you are home, you are home all in and you're not kind of dragging work back home with you or you are emotionally or mentally disengaged because you're kind of ruminating about 
the stuff that is going on at the office. I learned three things. I was very happy that Joshua said that to me. And he really meant it. And my youngest son, John, said the same thing. I always had three things that I focused on so that I could be as productive as possible, do my job to the best of my ability, and have time to be with my family when I wasn't traveling. And those three things were, first of all, prioritization. I was very deliberate about focusing on priorities in my work. People would make fun of me, my teammates would make fun of me, because I would always carry these notes with my to-do lists. And so I had six-month priority lists, I had three-month priority, and then monthly, and I carry a daily priority list. And really being deliberate about what matters most, what are the most critical things that you got to deliver and that you are personally responsible for. And then at the same time, being disciplined about looking at the bottom 10% of what's on your calendar and kind of choosing not to do them, get rid of them, is really important. And I was very, very focused on that prioritization. The second part is planning. A lot of times when you get overwhelmed by what's going on is because you haven't seen around the corner. You haven't looked far enough in front. So I always spend time figuring out, okay, what are we trying to accomplish? What are the objectives that we're trying to pursue? And what could be the derailers? What could be the things that go wrong? And I try to proactively neutralize those things. I try to proactively get out in front of them so that when the time came, it wasn't a crisis. We had already kind of diffused the problem. So I think planning, both from a calendar standpoint and let's say operational planning standpoint, but also really trying to diffuse problems before they materialize was the second thing that I did well. And of course, there's always going to be those fire drills that come and you cannot do anything about, but with proper planning, you can minimize those. And then the third thing I focused on was time management. I mean, I always thought the time that I'm spending in the office in tasks that are non-value-added or bureaucratic or that are inefficient, it's time that's keeping me from being able to do what I want to do, which is have a, a good life balance and to be as much with my family as I could. So I think really using your time efficiently and effectively is very important. It's important, as corporate athletes teaches you, for you to take frequent breaks, to walk around, get some water, get your blood flowing. But at the same time, there's a lot of times tests that you get trapped in that you feel are not really adding value and it's it's wasting your energy and you're not really accomplishing anything. So I think with proper priorization, planning and time management, you can have your cake and eat it too. You can be very productive and deliver on all your expectations with high quality and still have the time to live a great life. Wow, that's a masterclass and answering that question. What a phenomenal, even kind of clear articulation of those ideas, which I think each one by itself is great, right? That prioritization and being very clear about it, the planning component, like you said, so that you can help to manage the things and diffuse problems before they materialize. And that time management piece, I, I hadn't really thought of it that way, but I think it's a valuable thing for our listeners to take away is, yeah, if you are inefficient at something, if you are doing something not in the best way that it can be done, sometimes you're like, ah, oh, you know, what's the big deal? It's, oh, well, that's then stealing time from something else that you might want to be more dedicated to family or 
whatever else it, it might be that you're looking to balance with. So I love all three of those things as advice for finding that type of balance. And now a word from our sponsor. Today, we're talking to alumni entrepreneur Jesper Vigand, board advisor to Gray Hair Works. Gray Hair Works is a collective that curates innovative solution partners for CPG, retail, and brands via network experience C-suite advisors. Jesper, would you say that you have gray hair? Uh, well, if only you could see me, you wouldn't even have to ask. So look, it would appear that business innovations needed more now than ever, but it's still harder than ever for companies to get their heads around it. How do you unpack this problem? Let's start with the classic. The only constant is change. There is no business on the planet that have built in today's reality into their current business plan, let alone foreseen anything like it as part of their running 10-year plan. So it figures that not everything is going to plan for anyone right now. But what hasn't changed is that every business still have two broad objectives, to do what they do more effectively, sell more, do more, and so forth, and to do it more efficiently. And new ideas or new approaches, innovation, if you will, is required to deliver both of those broad objectives. You need to do something different. If you want different outcomes, you need innovation. So who really needs this innovation? What's the problem that you're uniquely solving? Obviously, it's true for every organization or company with objectives that are different from their current status quo. But I'm really mainly concerned here with what we can call big companies, because almost every big company is caught in a particular catch-22. They know that they need to innovate, but they also know that to operate, they need detailed plans that are institutionally conservative and informed by what was true yesterday. Because yesterday is the reality that their organization was designed for. So they don't manage to change the future. So you think you guys do manage to change for the future? Well, I don't uh, because I'm a dinosaur, but what I do think is that small innovative solution providers do. So people whose entire existence depends on innovation are more likely to come up with better innovation. Think of it, if you will, as an unforgiving commercial Darwinism. Now, if you sit in a big company, you of course know that, but even if you know it, what can you do about it? You know that innovations are out there. You probably even know that there are better definitions of your challenge and the associated solution out there. But that's actually no more helpful than knowing that the perfect book is stocked by the Library of Congress. So you know it's there. But you also know that you're rather unlikely to ever find it, particularly not in a situation where every author is shouting at you to get your attention for their specific book, frankly, whether you need that one or not. Yeah, I mean, there's more solution providers than people can keep count of. So how, how do you guys provide that solution or, or what is the solution for this problem? I was thinking with the library analogy, a good library needs an even better librarian. So our librarians, if you will, gray hair people, make it their business to help the companies not state their challenges. And we need an Apple, we need AI, but to figure out what they're trying to get done. And then we bridge to someone who can actually do that, just that, not just use the buzzwords that sound related. Here's the why. Business in the new world needs to think a lot less about what can I safely do myself and much more in terms of collaborative advantage. Small innovators can help you deliver collaborative advantage. There might even be some old PNG alumni out there that remember the catchphrase, make a little, sell a little, learn a lot. So is this the Gray Hair Works play? That is where we play. If you don't know what you want, or rather if you know what you want, but you don't know where to find it, then ask the librarian who actually knows. I'm gray-haired enough to know that the easiest way is when you don't know something, ask somebody who knows. And I also think that I'm wise enough to now know that I'd better not just Google my way ask, but ask somebody I actually trust. I think personal opinion, trust and curation will be the real premiums in the future of business. That's a compelling business case. So if people want to find out more about Gray Hair Works, Jesper, how do they do that? We'd love to hear about your challenges. So just get in touch, pg at grayhairworks.com. Jesper, thanks so much. And now back to our show. 
One of the things that you did at PNG was help to re- redesign the company's business development organization and work across technology, marketing, finance to develop more innovative capabilities. And so I'm curious from your perspective as a leader, how do you create more of this culture of innovation or adaption, adapting to change? How do you build that in within your team? Okay. I'm going to start from a couple of steps back. So bear with me, okay? And I hope this is helpful. It says, one of the things I learned the most from my time at PNG was from the company's values. And some of the things that I learned was in Procter & Gamble, first of all, you always do the right thing. But that doesn't necessarily only mean to be honest, to work with integrity, to be compliant. Of course, those are table stakes. But do the right thing also means have the courage, have the individual leadership that is required for you to make the company better than you would have been if you had not been there. So identify what is that thumbprint that you're going to live on the business, whatever your assignment is. Step up and ask yourself how we can make this business better how we can make this organization better and leave at the end of your assignment a legacy of contribution, a legacy that transforms and advances the interests of the company in a positive way. P&G also taught me that that's a company that always had the highest standards for everything they did. Things are done with excellence. That's the way P&G is. And I also learned that on their best day, PNGers lead the way. They change the game. They are innovators and they are not followers in our industries. They are the ones who initiate the change. They focus on the consumer. They look at the company's capabilities and assets and say, okay, how do we meet these consumers' needs better than competition can in a sustainable way? And then you create a lot of value. So those values were always deeply ingrained in me. And when I started new assignments, I always ask myself, what is going to be our legacy? What is going to be the legacy of this team? How are we going to change the business in a way that strengthens our competitive advantage, meets consumer needs in a unique way that other people cannot match, and in doing so, reward the stakeholders, reward ourselves, reward the company. And so that was always kind of this expectation that I had. There's so much to do and there's so many challenges that you face and so much competition that sometimes your instincts are just to kind of, as you start a new role, is to kind of just fit in, do your job well, deliver, comply, but kind of just just get that, that done. And I always believe that the best teams, the ones who transform the business and leave great legacies were the ones who always went a step beyond doing their jobs well and asked the question, what is going to be our legacy of transformation to make the company even better, to make this business even better? And so for me, innovation starts with these embracing these values. It starts with accepting that our jobs as individual leaders is to drive change that meaningfully you know, strengthens the company. Now, it all begins with the business strategy. Innovation does not happen in a vacuum. You start with what is our ambition? What is our aspiration? What choices are we going to make in terms of where to play and how to win? And I think being choiceful and focus on a handful of things that will drive meaningful change 
is very important instead of spreading the resources too thin. Once the strategy is defined and we got alignment to the strategy, then the innovation program falls from it and follows it. And I think that's the key is you start with assuming the responsibility to drive transformational change. You design a business strategy that is choiceful and bold, and then the innovation plan follows from it as you bring that strategic choices to life. That's kind of the sequencing of events that needs to happen when you start a new role as a leader, and then you drive that change over time. So I guess the question I would ask to those of you who are listening to me today is, is you think about your current assignment and you think, okay, at the end of it, what is going to be your legacy of transformation? Beyond doing your job well and delivering on your expectations, what is going to be the thing you look back and say, if I wasn't here, if me and my team were not here, this wouldn't have happened. And this has a sustainable legacy impact on the company. And I would suggest that if you don't have one or two big legacy contributions in your minds, then I would challenge you to go and think about those. Think about what those might be. And then, and by the way, this applies not only to senior people, but to junior people in the organization and also applies more broadly across a range of functional jobs or assignments. It's not only a question that I ask for people to work in innovation in R&D. Regardless of what your job is, you can make that personal leadership, individual leadership contribution. You can leave that thumbprint on your assignment when you're done. And that's what makes P&G so competitive. That's what makes P&G really such an outstanding, excellent company is individual leaders that assume for themselves the responsibility to make an impact and to have that impact be a legacy that lingers over time. Yeah, that's such a, a powerful question for people to ask of themselves to, to kind of see where they stand and for their team. So I think that's a great kind of challenge for people to like, yeah, what is what is that legacy going to be? And regardless, like you said, of where they happen to fall within the organization. Well, Jorge, this has been fantastic. As we start to wrap up, we like to end on kind of a rapid fire, quick questions, just get to know you a little bit more, have a little bit of fun. So a couple of quick questions before we close out. As a citizen of the world, really, I mean, you've spent time in Venezuela, Mexico, Brazil, like you said, born in Mozambique. You also speak Portuguese, Spanish, and English fluently. So I'm curious, do you have a favorite word or phrase in any one of those languages? It's going to sound stupid, but actually the words that are like a motto of mine are in English and the words are no surrender. So that means just you're going to face a lot of challenges in your life. You're going to face a lot of adversity. You're going to have successes and failures, but you should never lower your guard. You should never stop pushing yourself. You should never challenge yourself to, to be the best you can be as a leader, as a person. I like it. That's a, I think it's a great phrase, great motto to have. And if you had a week to do anything with no restrictions, what would you do? I would go back to Mozambique. Mm -hmm. Okay. I think that's a great thing to do. And last one in this kind of section is, is who's someone out there that you would love to grab a coffee with? This is somebody that's alive or somebody that was potentially dead or? Yeah, it could be, it could be either one, whichever way you want to interpret the question. Yeah. Well, I would say Jesus Christ. Okay. But again, I am mindful that bringing up religion in, 
in a professional setting like this may not be the most appropriate thing to do. So please use that judiciously. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah. Well, and I think that any number of reasons, it would be a, a fascinating right. conversation then to have, yep. which I appreciate. So our last question as we close today is, what is one final piece of advice or challenge that you would give to the next generation of leaders? I would say that there's two things that are critically important for a young leader who's beginning his or her career needs to have in order to maximize their potential. One is self-confidence and the other one is humility. And I think I would recommend you try to always strike a good balance between those two things that at first can be mutually exclusive, but they're really not. So first of all, self-confidence is incredibly important. You are always going to face challenges. You're going to face competition. You're going to have a lot of things that you're going to be accountable and responsible for professionally and personally. And life can be a bit daunting sometimes. And no matter how talented or capable you are, at times you may feel, you may doubt yourself. You may question, am I as, as strong? Am I as capable? Am I as good as, as I, I hope I would be? And I think it's really important that you listen to that voice inside of you that says, I can do this. I really believe in myself. I have this unshakable confidence in my abilities. And I have the courage to stand, stare at the challenges and overcome them. So I think that having that little voice inside of you, that little engine that pushes you, it's really critical. But at the same time, humility is very important because humility makes you be respected by others. Humility makes you be open-minded to learn. It keeps arrogance at bay. It keeps selfishness at bay. Humility makes people respect you and say, I want to follow this person. I want to work with this because they genuinely want to learn from me. They care about what I think. So I think if you have this balance between that self-confidence, but also the openness, the humility required to recognize that no matter how capable you are, you're not going to have all the answers. The best answers lie in pieces in the minds of the colleagues you work with, the people you are in touch with, and your job is to kind of bring the best, not only in yourself, but everyone around you. Then I think you have a great recipe for you to be accomplished, for you to be successful, but above all, for you to be respected and admired by the people that you touch every day. Wow. That is, I think, a fantastic way to close. Well, Jorge, thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Learnings with Leaders. I know the audience will really appreciate the insights that you've shared. It's my pleasure, Drew. I really enjoyed and thank you so much for the opportunity. Thank you. And that's our show. Like what you've heard, please subscribe and rate us on your favorite podcasting platform. For show notes about this episode, links to things mentioned, or requests for sponsorship, visit pgalums.com slash podcast. Follow us on Twitter at pgalumpod. We'd love to hear from you. Learnings from Leaders is a production of the PNG Alumni Network, a global nonprofit founded by former PNGers committed to community, enrichment, and philanthropy. With more than 45,000 registered members worldwide, the network connects alums through global conferences, local chapters, industry events, and online content. Our nonprofit foundation supports economic empowerment in communities around the world. To find out more, visit pgalums.com. Now, here's a preview of next week's episode. We were convinced that competition was going to beat us to the punch. So we started a second test market, conducted the market analysis, and committed the capital. And sure enough, it was a dismal failure. That experience really shook me. I learned about intellectual honesty. We went back in those retabs to find the answer we wanted. We didn't look at them objectively and 
From then on, I tried to have real intellectual objectivity in the decisions, even if it was unfavorable. Otherwise, it can be very dangerous and costly. You put blinders on, you only see what you want to see. You only want to see the answer that fits the script. That's it for this week. I've been Andrew Tarvin. And I'm still Roman Segel. Thanks for joining Learnings from Leaders, the PG Alumni Podcast. We'll see you next time.